Hello and welcome to the Real Maxime podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, private investor. Confidence is the essential trait that defines each individual's hope and faith in achieving their goals that leads to successfully achieving accomplishments in the future. Having sports confidence means having self-confidence, which is your belief in your ability to complete a physical skill or task required in your sport. When I first sat down with Balder Bowmans, Chief Investment Officer of Maven 11, his confidence and commitment to power what he refers to as the digital renaissance remains undeterred. Balder has been investing in the crypto space since 2016 and joined Maven 11 early 2018. Maven 11 is a crypto native venture fund with a unique and powerful deal flow that has successfully launched two funds since 2017, something of a rarity in a volatile industry. Under his watch, Maven 11 has grown to one of the most respected venture capital firms in the industry. His unstoppable focus on finding and supporting talented founders has given Maven 11 a very strong reputation among founders, other major crypto VCs, and in the crypto ecosystem at large. Within Maven 11, he is leading the investment team that has assessed over 3,000 crypto projects in the last four years and published several research pieces. Maven 11's core thesis aims to harness four main themes currently playing out in innovation investing amidst a renewed focus on building away from speculative use cases, shifting technology adoption, developer engagement, emerging ownership economy, and the greatest generational wealth transfer in history currently occurring between boomers and millennials. Balder and his team of 20 people across continents pick winners and pick them early. They are not hesitant to roll up their sleeves and take a hands-on approach to post-transaction value add, something their founders regularly attest to, which is also why Maven 11 founders are their best sources of referrals. Before joining Maven 11, Mr. Bowens traded European cash equities for eight years at boutique investment bank Van Kempen & Co., gaining extensive knowledge of trading strategies and risk management. He is a former national level field hockey player and holds a master's degree in economics and finance from the University of Amsterdam. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I grew up most of my life actually on a small island, which is like half an hour away of Amsterdam. So mostly been always school was obviously important, but I a lot more enjoyed outdoor activities, sailing, and at young age became very good in a sport called field hockey, which is a lot less popular on the other side of the pond compared to Europe. It's quite a big sport here in Europe. And by growing up with that field hockey stuff, I became quite ambitious on that front, uh, even up to playing in the national squad after my 21st age. Um, so yeah, I grew up on an island. From there, I started to take on university in Amsterdam, University of Amsterdam. Got a big interest always in finance from early on, but while doing my university always been very busy investing in all kinds of stuff and elaborate a little bit further on. And then after, yeah, well, seeing obviously that I was so, well, hooked up on finance after my studies, got into finance and into banking, I should say. So something comes out here. You spend a lot of time on the trading floor and, and we'll get there. You spent a big part of your career taking and managing risk. It's a highly competitive, high pressure environment. What did you draw from your experience as an athlete? What are the takeaways from that period in your life? Yeah, I think there's a lot of similarities between being a business in any form and then also being able to perform at a high level. Obviously, if you, uh, from even young ages, if you're good at something in sports or any other expression, I think you need to have a lot of discipline and commitment to push through, right? I mean, I think there's a lot of sacrifice even at young ages 
So I think that that discipline is extremely important in everything you do, and obviously that's something you very much learn from. Yeah, spending a lot of hours on something you're good at. And the second thing I think, which is also very important, is that you need to cope with a lot of pressure, right? So I think a lot of stuff you do in daily life comes with um, some milder forms or heavier forms of pressure, uh, and I think you need to be able to handle that at the right level. Also, in my case, it was preparing for a game. So going to training, you train six or seven times a week. You go to a game on the Sundays and there's a lot of adrenaline, right? You need to perform. There's 70 minutes. You need to get a result. You play for top teams. You need to win championships, all that stuff. That's, um, that's obviously very high adrenaline stuff, which is obviously great to live on. And I think that's what attracted me to the dealing room environment or the banking environment that you want to serve clients. And if things go well, you have a deal, you work towards something that I think there's a lot of adrenaline from that moment. And that's also, well, to a lesser extent, but that's also obviously in our industry, right? To be, you want to find something early, you have an idea, you have a thesis, you put a lot of effort and work in, you spend a lot of time with these people working in that domain. And then I think if something pans out, I mean, it's less of an adrenaline, but it definitely is a form of finding success together. So I think that's sort of not so much the rush itself, but the fact that you're constantly performing and want to be at the highest level and work towards something. I think that's something I um, we as a team and me as an, as an individual are always striving for. And one of the things I'm always really interested in is the psychology of the athlete, right? If you look at the top decile of athletes in any sort of league or profession, be it I'm a huge Formula One fan, look at NBA, you look at NFL, it's the ability to under these conditions of incredibly high pressure to not only keep focus, but use that to outperform the remaining cohort. How do you think about performance under pressure? Like when you went out on any given weekend and had to perform in a game, I mean, it's obviously a team sport, but at the same time, the whole team is relying on you at very critical moments. So how did you personally deal with that and develop that mindset? It's good that you well, first off, I'm also a big F1 fan, so we after this podcast, we should have a lot more moments around F1. Yeah, it is, for us as a team, I think if you look at our team today, there's a lot of different disciplines in our team, right? In our event, we have a lot of, we also have the, we have the venture activities, but we also do have been undertaking other activities at Maven 11 over the years. Um, so if I look at a venture team, there's people have a very strong finance and back, economics background. There's people who are extremely strong on the infrastructure side. There's people who are very strong on the designing go-to-market strategies, more on the BD side of things. So I think what we have been trying to do is craft a team over time, which is very diverse. And I think that's obviously very much needed for, well, let's say the end client, which in the end are, are entrepreneurs and ventures, which you want to support um, in their venture going forward over the years, especially from the sort of earlier stages, pre-seed seed. And then, yeah, when some things work out, right, if you have been early on a certain thesis, right, in our case, that's, we have been very early on, the modular thesis, which we can elaborate on a little bit later on, but then and then that starts to pan out. And this year, we're really starting to see that the modular takes off. That's obviously a great accomplishment for the team, I think, as a whole, and obviously it gives us a lot of joy. We're not even near finished yet, obviously, with the modular thesis and what should be built, but it's obviously something that definitely, well, that we're striving for as a team to make sure that we find these earlier themes and that we continue to do so. And I think that's also the heartbeat, right? We, I think, we try to operate. As a sports team, which is heartbeat, which is constantly on the ball, knows what's going on in the industry, um, speaks to a lot of ventures out there, speaks to a lot of entrepreneurs, and has a good relation with all these people. And I think 
especially on a team level, it's even different from an individual sport. On the high pressure, when things do not go so well, let's say a beer market where ventures are struggling, I think that's where it's really important to understand the elementary level of how to perform as a team, right? If things do not go well, you can call someone an asshole or you're going to find a way together to move forward, right? And I think that's also how we assess our founders as a whole is that we, the interpersonal relationship in our investments is extremely important because we very well understand that sometimes things do not pan out as you expect to. And then we want to make sure that we can still have that conversation when things are a lot tougher than expected or did not get the desired outcome. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'd say, drawing from what you just said, another really key quality of the athletic mindset is to very quickly be able to bounce back, understanding what is past is past, that you need to learn from it and move on and not let it affect you and understand that failing and not winning is part of the game, right? Because if you get into that mindset of, oh, expecting that you're going to win all the time, then anything less is going to affect your ability to perform. So talk to us about your career progression. So you develop an early interest in finance. You're a young athlete. You're attracted by the dealing room. What roles do you gravitate towards and how does that happen? Yeah, sure. I love the comment around understanding that you shouldn't be sitting in disappointment for too long, but indeed learn from the lessons and moving forward to those and improve from there, right? That's extremely important. On my career, so yeah, been studying finance. Definitely my finance studies took a lot longer than I expected. I think at that time, I also make a conscious decision. Obviously, I did my studies, but I was brought a lot to play hockey. I wanted to progress myself. I wanted to make sure I got the national squad and play as many caps as I got or as I could. And then obviously finish the studies. During my studies, I was already quite, well, not heavily investing in terms of size, but I spent a lot of time on understanding the investment process as an individual. At that time, I don't know how exactly anymore, but I think in 2006, 7 and 8, I became quite the gold lover. Obviously, my portfolio wasn't big enough to say, okay, let's sit in gold and let's wait it out. I think that was also the right decision because gold hasn't been the best performer or let's say the outperformer since that time. So what I did, I spent a lot of time um, researching the junior gold miners, which I think are a lot of them are located and incorporated in, obviously in Canada and the US. Started emailing management teams their plans and started harassing them as a small-time investor. And from there on, obviously, I've, it was quite clear to me I needed to go to finance. I finished off my studies, uh, moved over to Kempen, which is a boutique investment bank based out of Amsterdam. Then, well, I sat in the dealing room for almost a decade, and I think in 2015, 2016, some of the mates already started chatting about what Ethereum has to offer. Um, I, I was definitely not convinced at that time. I think it was a little bit too old school in my thinking, I could say today. And then over the course of 2017, again, obviously got my interest back, started developing, or oh, I would say a lot broader interest for everything that was happening in crypto and started to organize off conferences over that year while we're still working at the bank. And at the end of the, that year, decided to leave the bank and started to do a full-time join at that time, Maven 11, which was founded just before me, I think a couple of months before me. And since then have been shaping and shaping the teasers at Maven 11 ever since till, well, I think today we are with 24 people. So we're continuing to grind and very interested about everything that's happening in crypto and, and keen to move forward here. Yeah, no, I look, I mean, in 2015, 2016, I recall very clear conversations with people who were already deep in the space and looking at it with interest, but skepticism as well. And probably also 
not as much of an understanding as I do now. And look, it's hard to call the emergence of something on a mass scale, right? It all looks obvious in hindsight, but it, it's not necessarily the case. Along the way, were there any setbacks on your banking side or was it sort of smooth sailing and you were able to, again, applying that athletic mindset, perform year in, year out? Or were there things that you learned along the way where maybe there was a more difficult moment that helped you grow professionally? I think generally my career was quite smooth sailing, if anything. Um, it's uh, obviously a very competitive environment, if you understand, or if you, or if you have been in the dealing room. Um, there's a lot of, at this time, young males. It's obviously that's something that should change over time, but it's an extremely highly competitive environment with also, well, I don't think stress is the right word, but especially definitely a lot of high pressure, you know, managing positions, uh, bigger positions, seeing what markets are doing, having a view about what macro and micro are doing combined is extremely important in that role. Um, it's a role that needs to fit you. So it fits me well because it is in a team environment and it is under high pressure, which I've done most of my life on the sports side. So I think I went through that quite well. I think the only yeah thing why I also left and got interested into crypto is obviously crypto itself because it's so extremely compelling to have a look at and have an opinion on. But also, it's a role that over a certain period of time starts to get um, a little bit, maybe bored is not the right word, but you come into, you obviously do a lot of the same stuff every day. So I was definitely looking to continue to develop myself as an individual. And I think um, becoming an entrepreneur in this space was definitely the right move for me at that stage. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And I would say you probably have a fairly good understanding of what it means to manage risk. We'll talk about the really the big difference between what you do in a, in a traditional venture setup is that you have a mix of highly liquid and highly liquid uh, securities in your portfolio, depending on how you want to qualify it, whether they're securities or, or tokens. So when you got started, you said there was a structure in place. So these were folks that you'd started interacting with. So would you say that those were your co-founding partners? Like how did the group come together? Yeah, indeed. My co-founding partners, they have been investing in, well, I think it was only Bitcoin at the time in, since 2011. That's also where the reference comes from towards Maven 11. Um, so Jochen and Joost have been uh, investing in Spain since that time. And 2015 had the idea and got the interest from some sort of more institutionalized investors, family office alike, to co-invest alongside them. They wanted to set that up into a fund structure, but as you might understand, getting a bank account in 2015 for onboarding into a fund which is going to buy Bitcoin or any other assets was quite hard, um, especially if you want to do in Holland. And it was definitely their big preference to set up the complete structure here in the Netherlands. Um, so that took uh, around 18 months. And so then the structure eventually went live or the fund went live at the start of 2017. And I joined immediately a couple of months after. So yeah, since then, we are building out the company together. We lost one co-founder along the way. Today, there's two of us, and we have been building the company ever since. I think what we have been doing, trying to do over the years is build teams, which we, well, I would say sort of train in-house. So we've tried to find, obviously, very talented people, like everybody in this industry, uh, but then also make sure they, we well, give them a flavor of sort of the Maven 11 DNA. How do we want to work? And that sports mentality, which we just chatted about, is definitely something we want to bring forward. So, so being front of mind, always on the ball. Um, if ventures are having requests, make sure you react quickly. So all these 
um, items you want to bring back to the table and make sure they slowly start to understand the Maven 11 way of working. So in terms of the logistics, you talk about the difficulties of setting up a bank account for crypto native business. The irony is we're in 2023, and at least on the US side of things, it remains incredibly hard to set up to convince banks to you know, adopt businesses and bank businesses that touch crypto in any possible way. At the time, I understand because it was literally something that was unknown. As far as setting up the structure, did you go about just a traditional fund structure and taking from a, an existing playbook? Was there anything different as to how you set up the fund? And how much more complex was it based on now your knowledge of what it took to set it up and structure the fund? Yeah, no, it was quite tendered. The, obviously, the problem was that you needed a bank account here in the Netherlands to facilitate the onboarding of euros into any crypto. That was the biggest pain point. And I think they obviously had discussions with dozens of banks over the, that 18-month period that no one was willing to give a bank account. To be honest, till today, I still think that we got a bank account because there was someone didn't really understand what was on the other end of this fund. So it was more a mistake than, I think, a policy, to be honest, which we obviously were very happy with. And yeah, today is obviously very different, right? I mean, the industry, at that time, the industry was unknown and were very small in size. And I would say not uh, not as important as where we are today, where it's obviously an, an ever-growing market, um, structurally very important for a lot of jurisdictions around the world and a more um, a policy decision to make sure that we are not able to access banking anymore, right? I think that's crystal clear today. And I think, yeah, ourselves and also a lot of other players in this industry have felt the issues over the last couple of months to make sure we have access to a normal bank again and can operate paranormal. I think that's going to be definitely important. And on that note, I think that Europe will probably be maybe somewhat in a stronger position, right? I think banks in Europe are not as used to facilitate any transactions or to understand this industry as at large as the U.S. banks have been doing over the last couple of years. But seeing what's currently happening on the policy side, I do see a lot of more European banks being willing or at least trying to understand what how they can facilitate European clients either on a fund level or on an adventure or an entrepreneur level. So there's a lot more willingness also on the back of Mika, which is obviously providing a clear framework than what we're currently seeing in the US. I think we're going to see a lot more companies moving over to a European basis. Yeah, no, I would tend to agree with that assessment. And it seems that Unless there is a noticeable change on the policy front in the U.S., I think you're going to see other jurisdiction take advantage of it to actually create frameworks that builders, investors can optimize around. I think the U.S., the, the main issue is the lack of clarity. And we certainly I intend to elaborate on this conversation. I think your opinion will be very, very valuable. Back to the initial setup, when you start a, an early stage fund, the assumption is you're not necessarily going to raise a very large amount of money in terms of the assets under management. And so the first thing that comes to mind is, given your model, as you've shared with me, is over time, at least, has become very involved, right? In terms of research, in terms of post-transaction assistance to portfolios, in terms of the network and the curated network that you maintain for all your portfolio companies and your founders. At the beginning, though, if you have a small amount under management, how do you meet your costs, really, of operating? Presumably, you had to take the entrepreneurial risk for at least a few years before you demonstrated the thesis. So how did you go about that, and how did you feel about that at the time? Yeah, no, that's 
I mean, if you look at my timing, obviously I was one of the kids who got in at the high of the high, right? So let's say it's, I think around the after the summer of 2017, I made the decision and then joined the fund. I think the high of Bitcoin is December around Christmas 20, uh, 2017. And then I think 2018 was gruesome for ventures, everybody in the industry, right? Either on the builder side or on the venture side. I think it was an extremely tough period um, where a lot of people, I think, in the a first phase, start of 2018, was sort of denial. Oh, we'll get back to these old levels. And then it really started to come down to uh, way lower levels than I think a lot of people expected, with I think around uh, 3K, if I'm not mistaken, at the end of 2018. And I think that's, yeah, our business model obviously is not 220. Um, but I think even besides our business model, I think a lot of people there either made a constant decision to move back to where they came from, to find a job maybe back into tech or, or finance. And there were also obviously people who endured the pain over that period and made sure they stick stuck around and continue to redefine the thesis. Um, I think a lot of reflection was needed from a lot of people on the space, but also from actors like ourselves. What is our role? How do we add value? And I think that time, 2018-2019, we have very constantly used to further, well, redefine our thesis together with the people at that time at the firm, um, which led up to where we are today, right? Which is a way clear thesis. Um, we have been making the first successful investments venture investments over the course of 2018-2019 on the back of that thesis. Um, and I think that has been the basis of where we are today as a firm. Were there moment of extreme doubts on your part? I think we go back again to that athletic mindset, but inevitably we're human as well, right? So during that phase, did you ever think, oh gosh, I wish I hadn't quit the banking job? The honest answer is yes, I guess. <laughs> I think, yeah, for sure. I mean, everybody had healthy doubts, right? I mean, was there enough conviction to stay? For sure, but otherwise we wouldn't be in this position and we wouldn't have built out the firm where it is today. Um, so yeah, the, our commitment to conviction around what this industry has to offer at large was way bigger than the doubts. But yeah, obviously from an operational standpoint, there were healthy doubts, which phase we're in. I think also at that time, if I'm not mistaken, you know, you had all the, the China started to ban everything that was related to crypto again. Multiple countries started, started to ban. You have LPs asking, okay, it's banned everywhere. What's sort of the future of this industry? We tried to, it wasn't open in the fund at that time. So we obviously, we were also st still trying to, continuously trying to fundraise, which was a lot harder at, over the course of these years. So there was a, were a lot of reasons, I think, as an, as an individual and as a business person to doubt what you were doing. But yeah, for us, luckily enough, our conviction and commitment to this industry and the technology at large was way bigger than our doubts. And that's the reason why we stayed and made sure we operated very lean. I think that's also important, right? Make the right decisions. Make sure you stay lean in the extreme uh, beer market moments you can have. And we've been seeing the same over the course of 22, right? I mean, it's not new. It's probably a little bit more, oh, it's on a way bigger scale than what we've seen in 2018. Because I think reflecting on that moment, we all say, well, that was actually quite fair because 2017 was the whole rise. So the majority of the rise in 2017 was completely built up on vaporware. And today we have all these use cases um, around DeFi, NFTs, and we have been enduring the same pain over the course of 22 because a lot of parties were over levered and haven't been taking care of the risks, right? So it's the same thing happening over on a bigger scale. And I think at these times, yeah, the people who have been going through many of these cycles or more cycles very well understand what's on the other side of the spectrum, which eventually is a healthier market. Uh, where, yeah, probably the, the less healthy companies have been flushed out of the market. And I think uh, on this basis, we can continue to build again. That makes perfect sense. Who gave you money in the early days? Whether it's Fund 1 or Fund 2, 
who are the key backers? Not interested, obviously, in reaching any confidentiality here, but just in terms of the profile. Because when you went in those conversations and trying to convince people to back you in this effort, it took the conviction that you just described. But I'm wondering, and this is for listeners who may be out there raising money for a build for a new fund to understand the process and the psychology of how you get your initial backers? Yeah, that's a good question, by the way, especially in this time, right? Because indeed, I think the market for fundraising obviously is extremely cold out there right now. And especially, well, we are probably still on the verge of being an emergent or more emerging or established manager. But indeed, if you're raising for your first fund, it's extremely tough. And we were in that moment in 2018, 2019, uh, 2017 obviously was a somewhat of an easy period. So I think the earliest investors were family officers which had a risk on helmet or who have been understanding or have been investing and understanding tech for I think two or three decades and wanted to get exposure to this industry and were not able to do it themselves. I think that was a, a group and the second group was sort of more high net worth individuals which you build a longer term relationship and start to see you as a well, I think they're investing in you as a person, right? So I think making sure you maintain relationships with a lot of interested parties around you in the right way, buying informing them via newsletters, making sure you keep them informed about what's happening in the industry and what you're seeing happening in the industry is extremely important to sort of build that loyal group around yourself from these earlier days. And then, yeah, I think you'll get used to it, right? It's also a matter of um, just knocking on as many doors as you can, effectively, obviously. And there will be many no's. And by continuing and persevering, there's also going to be a couple of yes, right? And I think especially in these times, as a fund manager, dependent of a little bit on your structure, but you only need a couple of yeses because we all understand how outrageous the returns can be in this industry if you find a, lot of the, find a couple of amazing gems that are out there, right? So yeah, perseverance, extremely important, getting used to hearing no in beer markets. Although I should admit that's definitely different right now today than four or five years ago, because I do think that crypto as a whole is a lot more established. And I think that's also what you're seeing when we are chatting with institutional investors. No one is shying away and they're continuously staying interested. And they definitely see this more as an opportunity to start investing than an opportunity to start to move out of the industry. Yeah, no, I, I would say I agree with this. I think the main difference between now and a few years ago in the space is that if, especially in the institutional side, I'll take aside the family office contingent, but if I look at institutional pensions, endowments, fund of funds, they may be constrained from an allocation perspective. Like let's just say we just went through a massive duration shock and liquid equities also have fallen in value, right? So, which means the alternative portion of your portfolio is a much greater percentage that hasn't necessarily been marked down as we know. And it becomes increasingly difficult to justify additional allocation. So they have to get more creative. And then there's the internal political process of you know putting an investment thesis forth within an investment committee. And in those times, there is a political risk at the individual career level. The difference, though, is I don't think there is a lack of either understanding on the parties that look at the space nor is there any doubt. It's more of a constraint, right? And so this is where, on some level, you haven't stuck it out for that period of time and now being established and building a fund three is your track record, right? And so it's actually coming at the right time because you have that. 
And so if, if an investor is looking at you versus, let's say, a completely emerging effort, I think you're going to have the upper end. And it's unfortunate you know, for new efforts in the space, but it is a reality, right? Um, so again, it's not existential anymore, although there are many, many doubts around regulation and the policy framework. But I think if you're an executive at an institution right now who's been paying attention to space, who might have written a few checks along the way, you're more likely to be constrained than lack belief in the space. Yeah, I would definitely agree, John, 100%. How are the partner and managing partner roles split within your team? Yeah, no, so Joost, who is currently the other co-founder and partner in the firm, um, I think from these earlier days, my background in finance or investing has always well been a very aggressive and deeply researched. So I think, you know, from when I joined the firm in 2018, I think we started to see quite clearly or naturally that it's probably the best move for us to make sure that I spend most of my time on building out or fleshing out the investment thesis together with the people on the team. So that's definitely not only my own effort, but that's a team effort. And then he has been always been more focused on the organizational side of the organization. So investor relations, fund management, building out the organization on the compliance side of things, right? So as we grow larger in size, there's a lot more stuff we have to take into account from an operational standpoint, which is taking up a lot of efforts, time and team efforts. So now, obviously now we have dedicated people to do so. Uh, making sure that's being handled well is extremely important for myself, but also the venture team at large and the other business lines to make sure they can focus on executing on the commercial side of things. So that's how we have handled well the split in activities today. And it's been a, a very decent split for the both of us so far. That makes sense. And one thing that's very important, and it sounds like you have this, is creating teams that have highly non-overlapping skills, right? You have a common belief in the effort and a common culture where that's very, very important, right? It's a set of values that drives the business, but you have those non-overlapping skills that allow you to execute on different areas and not get bogged down or have blind spot. So we're getting to the part where this is really exciting because you are the guy working and leading on the thesis. And so I want to dive into the business itself and how you look at the world now versus when you got started. So you've shared with me at a high level sort of how you guys have seen the thesis evolve. Can you talk to our listeners about how you initially viewed the world? And as you're getting to fund three, what are you trying to capture in terms of the upside? Yeah, I think what if you think if you look at Maven 11 is that we are, well, we have been seen as atypical, let's put it that way, since compared to a lot of other funds out there, I think we have been very early on modularity. So we've been early stage investing in Celestia and of the big belief that for yeah real scalability, low cost transactions, which we're actually already maybe seeing happening today, obviously with roll-ups on Ethereum, that you need to think modular. So that means splitting these core components of execution, settlement, and lastly, uh, data availability and consensus. At that time, I mean, that whole field was also to us quite new. We, I think when Mustafa wrote it, we found Mustafa's paper, which he was his PhD paper actually called Lazy Ledger. And we found it very early. We reached out and we had a couple of calls and we let him know that if he ever is thinking about commercializing ideas, we would love to continue chatting. I think he reached back out a small month after. And from then we, well, we had a lot more calls asking a lot of dumb questions because it was quite a novel idea. 
where even the roll-up term was not even really out there yet. I think it was around the same year, 2019, that roll-ups were also coined by John out there. Um, so yeah, that was sort of the, yeah, I think to our teachers, we believe very much in decentralization. We think these data availability concerns layers should be completely decentralized. I think that's what Ethereum is today. And we saw Celestia as a follow-on um, investment or follow-on to that layer, which is completely specialized, only does the data availability consensus layer, allowing for the execution layer to use that shared security layer. And that will also mean that we can have a lot of execution layers in the future, right? Because there's an abundance of block space. That's essentially what the aim of our investment was here. Um, so that's been very crucial to the thesis. So that's how we've been investing over the years. And today, obviously, we are seeing a lot more creativity. We see sovereign, we see roll-ups, we see sovereign roll-ups, we see ZK roll-ups, optimistic roll-ups. So there's a lot more. We see new VMs on roll-ups. So I think there's a lot more creativity from this thinking, from the fact that we can start to specialize certain layers of a blockchain. Um, on fund free, we are continuing by this heavy infrastructure thesis. Um, obviously, there's uh, some, uh, well, some other important developments like CK technologies for scalability, privacy. I think obviously AI has, has become very important over the last six months. So we, obviously, compute layers is going to be extremely important to make sure that we can facilitate an abundance of compute for demand of future AI machine learning. Um, and a fund free will continue to further build on the thesis of modularity, well, compute. And where we're going to try to be more of a standout is that we, for instance, have carved out a part of the fund to be an earliest ticket in into anybody who is building in the modular design space. So it doesn't mean you doesn't mean you need to build on Celestia. It does it means that you need to build need to build something that obviously strikes that modular thinking, and from there we can start to really early invest in the like see it as like an accelerator thinking. Yeah, and so the way you guys look at the opportunity set from a Web three perspective. You emphasize the notion of ownership, right? And there's really an opportunity and one that I'm personally very excited about is how you take existing Web2 business models. So talk about the infrastructure, you laid the groundwork for that. And then on the user interaction side of things, there are business models that we know today exist that where the rent and the value is being entirely extracted by the providers in a highly centralized manner. So can you talk to us a little bit about how you guys look at the ownership economy and how you envision a redistribution of the value as part of that? Yeah, definitely. I think there's so many different use cases. Finance is obviously the most obvious one, which we have seen a lot of great implementations of already over the years, right? I mean, I think what DeFi has to offer is the fact, okay, so we are starting to think that we are becoming unbanked, right? So I access the internet, I use my wallet, and I can access an AMM, which allows me to trade any asset. I don't need to go to a bank. I don't need to go to an, an exchange with a silo. So there's a lot of trust components, which are completely taken out of the equation. So we already having started to establish that, only obviously at small, small scale. And for people who are used to, well, who are, familiar to use a crypto wallet today and, and understand the security risks. So I think, you know, that's a, an area where we need to obviously see a lot of improvements on the UI UX, right? So how are we going to make this better? So something like we currently see with counter extraction on Ethereum is an extremely exciting domain, which will allow for a lot better usage of wallets. Think around something like social recovery instead of a private key. So I think that's sort of these 
types of developments are extremely important to make sure that the application layer, which is already there today, can be used at way bigger scale. And then I think if you drill down there, I mean, something like the creator economy is anything of value today is held by centralized parties. If it's either art or if it's music or if any creator who has been creating something today needs distribution platform, uh, think about publishers in this space, which is obviously also going to be a very big domain. Why are you reaching out to your readers via a publisher? Why can't you do it yourself? How does an NFT hold value? Give access to a future article. So we are still starting to see the first um, scratches of innovation. I think we are already seeing innovation, but I think it's going to be very interesting over the course of the years how we how these tokens will start to capture value, how markets will change, how creators will start to maybe come in, into this industry as solutions are easier to use, right? Because I think that's the big jump we still need to make is that I think on the builder side, I think a lot of people have already have great ideas around how they can uh, innovate these industries where there's a lot of centralization and trust and make the world fairer in, in that market, make it more efficient. And at the same time, we need to make sure that the end user today, I mean, the art collector or a gallery is able to start to use this technology and start to yeah get familiar with it. And I think that's the move that's going to take a lot longer. Obviously, another domain where we start to see or has been always been very exciting, but obviously always been a little bit slower due to the regulatory form, this tokenization of real world assets. Um, well, Maple was a platform indeed, which started to offer loans to market makers since 2021 and is now also offering securities towards its end clients for a lot of sort of web free native players out there for treasuries they want to get access to or get exposure to treasuries well that's not possible via the maple finance platform so another form of okay how can we start to tokenize exposure to a bigger asset class in the world so i think we're starting to see continuously innovation but i think especially on the creator side that's where i think it will take a little longer but that's probably where we start to see the most innovation over the coming years you know, it's very exciting. And I look at some of the areas that you've mentioned under the assumption, and I know some groups have really started thinking along those lines and switching their mindsets in terms of usability, in terms of using the mobile as the form factor as opposed to the desktop, things like that, improving onboarding, improving on and off ramp to really spur adoption from the end user standpoint in a way that's transparent that then ushers into a period where you could see applications and services that you mentioned digital collectibles, for example, where you can create, discover, price, intangible value creation. And this is just one area, right? And potentially the gaming space, you'll see a tremendous amount of adoption as well if you're able to create this transparent, essentially layer around the complexity of the blockchain that really is an essential piece in a building block. You talk a lot also about developer adoption. What is your sense as a driver, right? What is your sense of the progression of the developer ecosystem? Because you straddle all the way from the infrastructure to the application layer. What is your sense? Because that's important to support innovation and development. Yeah, good question. I like that one. I think it's always interesting. I mean, I think we all understand this, but especially during the heydays, right, the bull markets, I think the amount of uh, engineers you see coming from some Silicon Valley trying to get into space, have a great idea in the NFT domain or in the DeFi domain, or even thinking about how we're going to build something maybe in the social media domain is quite a lot. I think we have three, four calls with people from these domains. 
And then obviously that starts to die down when the beer market is there, right? I think there's a lot less interest. But the good thing about these spurs up or this sort of the, the price acceleration, which then got us a, get us a lot of interest from developers around the world who normally would have chosen a career at Google or Amazon or Facebook and are now contemplating or actually getting into the industry and having been in the industry with the ethos that's there. I think a lot of these people are also deciding to stay, right? And that doesn't mean it's always a money decision, right? Probably they can, can go to an external job and make an amazing salary. But being in this industry, they're probably fine not making that salary because they think it's great to build within this ethos. The community thinking, the collaborative nature of this industry are so strong. And I think that's a lot of reason for them to stay. Obviously, there's a money component. So they need to be incentivized to make sure if markets come back and they are successful and they build an amazing venture, they need to be able to reap the fruits of that. But I think that a lot of these people are here to stay because of that collaborative nature and they feel that there's something special going on. I just actually came back, or just before consensus was at, uh, in Tokyo at the EVE Hackathon. EVE Global there, I think there were 1,500 hackers, right? So it gives you a sense of the power of this community. And I think, you know, that was one in Tokyo, but they organize dozens of these around the world. And we're continuing to onboard these developers into the Ethereum ecosystem, but also other ecosystems which... I think derive also a lot of developers from the VM ecosystem. So I think there's a lot of growth across a lot of different complexes at this stage, which is, uh, yeah, obviously for us, adventure companies in this space is amazing to see. No, it's encouraging. And you need that as a counterpart to the growth mindset because you need the engineers to be able to figure out how to implement the next go-to-market strategies, the next product market fit, right? And so it's everything has to work in balance. I think we've seen a little bit too much of a focus on the engineering and the building at the expense of figuring out the monetization piece. But what we want to make sure on a going forward basis is that we also don't lose that edge in product development. So it always maintains that balance. The last pillar in the way you think about thesis is this great wealth transfer that is in the process of occurring with millennials, right? And from the older generations and the way millennials and Gen Zs are going to essentially deal with money and investing and the way they think about what is fair, what is not fair, what is convenient and what is not convenient and the way they develop trust towards certain services and not others. So talk to us a little bit about that aspect of how that supports your thesis. Yeah, it's a good one. I think it's a report of JP Morgan, if I'm not mistaken, where I think in 2028, the new generation, the millennials or Gen Z even hold most of the value currently on the world compared to the older generation, right? So I think that's where sort of the cross-off year 2028, where that the majority of a big part of the wealth transfer will take place. Um, I mean, if I look at my kids today, right, I mean... They're, complete, they're so digitally native, right? They play around with apps. They, they love it. They're, it's intuitive to them. And I think they will continue to evolve. They're still young. So I don't. I hope they don't stay on these machines for too long, obviously, at this age. But apps, they start to grow. They get an iPhone in due, in due time. And then they start to play around with NFTs. I mean, you go to the supermarket. And in the old days, you got a well, physical uh, conversation things. And these things will probably become digitally native, right? They, you'll get them into an app and you can use them or another service somewhere else. So I think we start to get to the phase where these services, everything, all, all of these services start to become digital. And yeah, I think that our kids are so digital that they're not really looking forward to have a conversation with someone at the bank anymore. They just want to make sure they can access the web, can can buy any service they want. And obviously they understand 
well, they probably also run into issues. So that's also what's, for instance, something like Pepper, which is obviously coming up right now, in some way negative for this industry. But it's the, the playful part of these types of tokens is also a positive, right? Because if they, if my kids start to play around with these types of tokens, they probably lose a little bit of money along the way. Let's hope it's not too much. And then they understand the, understand the security risk. How do I take care of my wallet? Where should it be stored? What kind of solution is the best solution, right? So um, as they slowly start to get into this industry, and I think especially by content in the, in the creative industry, so the creative industries will probably make sure that at least my kids will get into the industry slowly. That's going to be extremely important. And by making small mistakes in the earlier days, you will probably set them up for a lot more and better security further down the line when there's a lot more in their wallets. And it's very digital. Oh, absolutely. makes sense. I think these are really significant drivers. So we talked about thesis, and there's really three main building blocks to starting and, and continuing to build a firm like yours. Thesis is one of them. Sourcing is the next big thing, right? Because you now need to find deals that fit your thesis. And then we'll talk about your investment process. Talk to us a little bit about how effective your sourcing mechanisms are and how it's developed over the life of the last funds. In other words, when you started, I'm assuming your deal flow was a lot less than what you see today, right? Is that correct? Oh, 100%. Yes. And it was not only a lot less, and I think we also didn't win always all these deals, right? So obviously by having a lesser name in the space, especially in these days back in 2018, 2019, it was also very heavy on the US side of things, or very heavy US game. We didn't always win deals. And as we have progressed as a venture team um, and started to build it, well, strongly on the thesis, but also build a team which is able to support these entrepreneurs and ventures at large and start to build the first successes together, then obviously you start to have to flesh out a name for yourself. And I think we're getting to that stage that there's obviously various ways of getting deal flow. There's a lot of friendly VCs around us who are looking for European deal flow, which we can help them with. We're obviously looking for deal flow, the right deals in Asia and US, but also deal flow is great, but then obviously make sure it's better deal flow, right? Because the amount of deals coming in is just, I don't know, it's just in impossible to see all of them so making sure that someone you trust has already seen something and spoken to someone hey you should speak to him because there's something interesting here either on a product uh, product basis or it's a great entrepreneur there's a great vision um that already helps in making sure you carve out sort of the first focus on the deals you like and so i mean i think the amount of deals we see on a yearly basis is between four to five thousand so it's almost impossible and next to the friendly vcs out there it's obviously lps but then i think especially for us what has been crucial is being close to our entrepreneurs and founders, helping them where we can on a lot of fronts. I think especially with, if I look at what we, how we work with them, is that we find very technical, heavy founders, and we generally are quite strong and sort of helping them with the soft skills, but also obviously with the research part of things. So the softer skills is obviously around okay, HR, incorporation, go-to-market when they're ready, um, a lot of these types of items. So I think, you know, when founders talk a lot, um, also obviously also what we do is that if an entrepreneur has a question, can I speak to a couple of your founders? I think it's always good to have a couple of strong references. And over time, yeah, that's, well, it's less and less needed as people have already found out they want to work with us. So I think, you know, making sure that you're close with founders and do spend a lot of time has been for us the crucial trick in the, in the deal flow we're seeing across the board today. That is very, very powerful. At the end of the day, it's a huge determining factor in how successful you're going to be, not only in creating a large upstream funnel, but how you construct it along the way and how do you refine how you allocate your time 
on the opportunities that you know best ex ante are likely to generate a deal and that you can get involved and start rolling up your sleeves. Which leads me to my next question, which is, you have a fairly large team for a fund your size, and that's by design. Can you talk to us a little bit about your approach to how you diligence deals, how you submit them for selection, but then how you stay involved on the post-transaction side of things? Yeah. So, well, there's a lot of incoming stuff. Obviously, we have obviously different roles within the venture team. So generally, dependent on where it comes in, we do like to make sure that the first call is with an analyst and someone on the partner level, dependent on the idea. Sort of it's an introduction call, right? So dependent on the founders, the idea, what we think of the market, where they're acting in, we take it to IC. We have a first conversation. This is not an official for us taking it to IC. This is more of a conversation. Okay, do we think this is interesting enough to make sure we spend more time? We, due to obviously how this market has Developed over time, we have a little bit of an atypical structure on the IC side of things. So we have, because we need to make very quick decisions in sort of the bull market period, we have three ICs a week. So Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, which allows us to make a 48-hour decision if needed. Uh, That's definitely not needed in this market. So this is more part of the ICs upkeep, introduction of new ideas, and then moving on to the next phase where there will be a deeper discussion over the course of two, three, or four calls on the product, the market, what we're thinking. And then we also make sure that obviously all the partners get their time with the founders and entrepreneurs, because as I said before, that personal relationship between the founder, founding team and us is extremely important. There's also been instances already where it's okay, we think it's a great idea, we think we'll do well, but we do not think we have the personal connection at this stage to make the investment, and then we shy away, um, because that's so key to the next phases of how we're going to work together. And then indeed, the when eventually the investment has been decided on, in an informal IC meeting. So that mostly of the time, that's after two, four uh, calls with the founding team or even more. Then we set up a call immediately. And then I think the our, our sort of recurring work with most of the founders, and this very much depends on the stage it's in, right? If you're really grinding, building product, you don't need a, t- a lot of our time and attention. You'll get back to us in two months, completely fine. But most of them will speak to you on a sort of bi-weekly basis, go over a couple of things in the industry. Are they thinking about a Series A? Should we change something about the product? Is a research call needed to further redefine the product or the issues in the industry we see there today? So there's a lot of things that come to mind. And obviously, dependent on the needs of the venture, we'll put the right people on the call. But yeah, that's the operating model is, has allowed us to make sure we build strong connections and then also get the deal flow from these connections over time. So that's definitely how we want to operate. Um, so our biggest challenge will be to make sure that we keep that operating model also, also for the new fund. That's definitely our aim. Um, but yeah, that will mean that we need to grow the team a little bit over time. That- justifies the size of a pretty significant team. And I do believe ultimately that whilst on the one hand, if you have businesses that really don't require a lot of hands-on assistance, they're actually the good ones, right? Because they've got it figured out, they're on track, they don't need a lot of attention. At the same time, the nature of the environment we're in for this specific space is one where it's not so much the involvement, and I hate to say it, the a lot of investors tend to want to micromanage their portfolios. It's more having more perspective, right? Because the builders and the venturers are in the trenches of their very specific space. So they're very knowledgeable about that. What you're seeing is you're seeing the entire industry, right? Your vantage point allows you to bring to them a perspective that they don't necessarily have. So it's less about telling them what to do 
is providing a second pair of eyes on what they're thinking about doing and also telling them this is what's happening outside. You might not see it because you're head down and you're cranking all day long, but I can tell you these other things are happening and they're worth a discussion or they're worth you paying attention to. Yeah, this is 100% it, right? You need to be a resonating board. And like you said, right, everybody is heads down building their own product or you know building out a team and making sure they open up the flaps a little and look a little bit wider in some cases is sort of our role, I think, as at large. There's seldom that we have a conflict or that we really feel strongly different about the way we need to go. But it's more indeed about, okay, have you thought, you're thinking A, but have you thought about B, C, D, and what will be the impact of these decisions? And how can we help in making these decisions? And what is needed to start to analyze and research these decisions? So that type of thinking is definitely what we do on a continuous basis. And we've been doing that for six years already in this space, right? So I think also people feel that, okay, by having that experience, having done in the past, seeing what has worked and what hasn't worked, especially people who are new to the space, I think, can definitely yeah, well, make sure that they can dive into that uh, somewhat richness of experience. Having seen founders in the industry for now a significant amount of time, you're one of the leading names in the venture space and crypto native space. How are founders different now than they were back in the early days when you started taking a look at selecting opportunities? Good question. It's, this is obviously a moment in time. I think we always see a lot of founders coming to the space when prices start to rise. I think that's very natural at these days. We also see a lot of less people coming to the market when, well, prices start to fall. We are, we are like this moment in time. Um, I think we, what we like to see, and it's not like it's the only thing that's needed, but it helps us in assessing, right? The sort of the DNA of someone who has been in the space who has been building something before, uh, maybe it was the wrong idea, maybe they made a couple of mistakes on the way, maybe they had a little bit of money on FTX, right? I mean, there's a lot of reasons for things to not turn out that you're aiming them to turn out. They come up with a new adventure, a new idea, they have researched the idea, and then we, we have spoken to them on a continuous basis when we did an invest in the earlier stage, or they come back to us via someone we know. And I think that DNA is something we like a lot because that means that if things go south, or this bear market could take, well, two to three years, right? I mean, nobody here has uh, knows the future by hand, right? So if this is going to be a long bear market, that will know they're going to be in here to stay. They will try to cut down on costs when it's needed. They will try to make sure the venture is still alive instead of, well, choosing maybe the simpler path, which is walking away from a venture, which, is, which didn't really work, right? So I think that commitment and conviction, and even something like pivoting, right? I had an idea, didn't work out. Maybe it wasn't the right idea. I still have money. I think I have a new idea, which is probably way better. I need a little bit of extra and I'm going to continue to build this. I mean, that type of relation is extremely important. So I think that's the DNA we would like to see. But yeah, that doesn't mean that someone who is new to the industry can also have an amazing idea and we should definitely look at. I think this is a, a great way to sort of encompass what we've been discussing today. And we started with your own DNA, right? It's important to understand that starting businesses and also convincing an investor such as yourself to be along for the ride, to see the upside and a very large potential upside, it's going to take an above average ability to execute, to structure, to be able to weather these different regimes. And that's where looking at someone's background and how they were formed as an individual, as a professional, as a team player is so significant. And so back when you talked about when your first investors committed into your partnership, they bet on the team, right? They saw something in the team 
that really fit what you were trying to sell at that time. And I think in an environment right now where I think it's a tremendous opportunity from where you stand, having the track record, continuing to be able to raise funds to buy into this bear market, whilst at the same time, the reason I ask this question is you now have this pattern recognition, those filters that will likely allow you to make even wiser decision that you made before, right? And so this all comes together nicely. Like you've got a very strong thesis. You're obviously in a position where you could source a high number of deals in a specific way. And you've got a post-investment process. So all the factors of making a successful venture investing business are there. Balder, it's been a, a real pleasure chatting with you today. I think we've learned a lot about your approach, how you intend to take things forward, and definitely one of the big names in the space. And I think I'd love to see over the next couple of years where you're going to deploy your capital, because I think a lot of these players are going to be the next leaders. And I'm excited to see that. So thank you very much for your time today. Well, thanks a lot, Maxime, for this invite. It was a pleasure chatting to yourself and looking forward to uh, well staying in touch about all this. Also, I think that's also interesting in, in this industry. Great. Thank you so much. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, not investment advice.